Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Miriam C. Brown Spires to discuss her book, Encountering the Sovereign Other, Indigenous Science Fiction. Thanks for tuning in. Science fiction often operates as either an extended metaphor for human relationships or as a genuine attempt to encounter the alien other. Both types of stories tend to rehearse the processes of colonialism, in which a sympathetic protagonist encounters and tames the unknown. Despite this logic, Native American writers have claimed the genre as a productive space in which they can critique historical colonialism and reassert the value of indigenous worldviews. My guest Miriam C. Brown Spire's book, Encountering the Sovereign Other, proposes a new theoretical framework for understanding indigenous science fiction. Placing native theorists like Vine Deloria Jr. and Gregory Cajete in conversation with science fiction theorists like Darko Suvin, David Higgins, and Michael Pinsky. In response to older colonial discourses, many contemporary indigenous authors insist that readers acknowledge their humanity while recognizing them as distinct peoples who maintain their own cultures, beliefs, and nationhood. This book analyzes four novels, William Sanders's The Ballad of Billy Badass and the Rose of Turkestan, Stephen Graham Jones's It Came From Del Rio, D.L. Birchfield's Field of Honor, and Blake M. Haussmann's Riding the Trail of Tears. Demonstrating how indigenous science fiction expands the boundaries of the genre while reinforcing the relevance of indigenous knowledge, Brown Spires illustrates the use of science fiction as a critical compass for navigating and surviving the distinct challenges of the 21st century. I'm eager to talk today with Dr. Brown Spires about those challenges, the science fiction genre, and the exciting work Indigenous people are doing in the field. She's an assistant professor of English and interdisciplinary studies at Kennesaw State University in Georgia, where she's also the coordinator for Native American and Indigenous Studies and teaches in the Gender and Women's Studies and American Studies programs. Miriam, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really am excited about your book because it does such an interesting thing with its conversation with the question of genre in general. Could you tell us a little bit how you settled on the term indigenous science fiction as a term of analysis? Sure. So when I was getting started, what I really wanted to do was make sure that I reflected that these are two distinct fields of study and that I'm looking specifically at the ways that they intersect with each other. So, you know, we have indigenous studies and indigenous literary studies in particular, which relies on tribally specific approaches and on really thinking about historical and cultural contexts um, rather than reading literature through just a sort of mainstream literary theoretical lens. But at the same time, science fiction studies is really its own field of study um, with its own theorists who have spent a long time defining and debating what's included in the field and what the subfields look like. And I wanted to make sure that I was doing more than just saying, oh, these are you know books by Native authors that happen to fit into the genre of science fiction. I wanted to really think about the ways that 
the underlying critical approaches can inform one another. So for instance, one major issue in science fiction studies has been the question of colonization. So the theorist Istvan Cicere Rone Jr. points out that most of the countries that have really robust science fiction traditions are also countries that have been engaged in imperialism. And the Jamaican-American science fiction writer Nalo Hopkinson talks about the ways that one of the most familiar memes in science fiction has been that of going to an exotic planet and then colonizing the natives. And so I was really interested in what happens when science fiction is being written by people who have been colonized, who are on the other side of that story. What happens when they start to adapt science fiction genre conventions? What happens when they are trying to tell the story from a new perspective and challenge some of the things that have been inherent in the genre in the past? It's such a fascinating dynamic. You know, it's one of those things that you kind of always know about science fiction if you're a fan, that that it does have this element of conquest and empire. And But to read it in your book and to think about it from that other perspective is really to realize how totally at the heart of science fiction that idea is that, you know, exploration and is about dominance and control and those kinds of things. I wonder if you could dig down a little bit into, you know, what it means to say that science fiction has been a kind of genre of empire. Yeah, I mean, I think that the stories that science fiction has told have been so grounded in Western perspectives that even when the genre prides itself on exploration, it's often done in a way that exoticizes the other or fetishizes the other, and that imagines, I think a lot of something like Star Trek, The Next Generation, which I grew up watching and loved. But, you know, they have this idea that they're going out into the universe and exploring and trying to help people and trying to follow the prime directive. But in most cases, they end up positioning themselves as superior to the other peoples that they encounter. And ultimately, they're called in to settle conflicts or come up with scientific solutions, or in some ways, essentially to be the saviors of the entire universe. And it's done under this guise that what they're doing is, is helping, but it always remains so firmly planted in the perspective of the people doing the exploring and the colonizing. And so I think that that has been very much present in the science fiction tradition, both the literary tradition and the film tradition, in ways that I think are so deeply rooted that we often don't notice that perspective. And I think that comes across even in the work of science fiction theorists who are trying to define the genre, you know, who say, uh, many theorists have argued that it's essentially, that what's so exciting about science fiction is that it's about possibilities. It's about being the literature of change, being able to imagine something truly new. Philip K. Dick, who's a fairly well-known, I think, science fiction writer, says that it's about creating a shock of disrecognition in the reader that leads to thinking new ideas. And yet, when the theorists start trying to lay out what they actually mean, they end up coming back to these European and American um, worldviews that simply that ultimately reinforce some of the ideas that they're trying to get away from. I'm so happy that you brought up 
Star Trek The Next Generation in your response there, because I think that it does really nail something about the tension that you're exploring in the genre. You know, we tend to talk about TNG at this remove as this sort of great progressive force where it's spreading all of these warm, you know, liberal values across the universe. And it's about tolerance and diversity and all these other things. And what I think you point out is that that can be true, but it also can be rooted in this sort of colonial mindset that takes for granted that the people aboard the enterprise have the best answers and are able to um, work you know, with, with others in the most peaceful way or collaborate in the best way or whatever kind of expression we might have for you know, explanation for their universal supremacy, even as they're acting as though they aren't occupying that position of colonizer. Absolutely. I think um, an episode that I actually end up talking about a little bit in the book, because it's one that's always stuck with me, is Who Watches the Watchers? And I think this is one of the really famous episodes of the show because essentially what happens is Starfleet has had an observation station hidden on a planet where the people are primitive and they're framed as primitive largely because they still believe in gods. And the Enterprise is accidentally revealed and the people see the Starfleet officers and they come to believe that Captain Picard is a god and they call him the Picard. Um, and they want to worship him. And so it becomes this problem of how do they convince the people that they're not gods while at the same time not interfering too much in their culture? Because the argument that they put forward is that these people have to be allowed to evolve. And once they evolve, they'll have scientific beliefs and they'll give up on this idea of religion and deities. And that idea is just so inherently biased towards a Western perspective, right? And towards a Western scientific perspective in particular that suggests that to hold any other belief other than a belief in Western science is essentially primitive and foolish. It reminds me of another sort of aspect of the theory that you're bringing to thinking about science fiction that I that I really wanted to ask you about because it also depends on a kind of temporal view of, of human existence, right? Like that eventually after enough time, you'll progress away from whatever wrong ideas you have and come to take, you know, these given ideas as, you know, the more true or the better or whatever. And you say a few times in the book that one of the main differences between European and sort of Western ways of knowing and indigenous ways of knowing is to do with difference between temporal and spatial thinking. Could you say a little bit about what it means to think of the science fiction genre through a spatial lens rather than a temporal one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that argument is grounded pretty heavily in the work of Vine Deloria, who argues that a major distinction between Western cultures and indigenous cultures is this idea of approaching life through either a temporal or a spatial lens. And he argues that Judeo-Christian cultures approach the world from a temporal lens largely because of their belief in Jesus Christ, that you have to see the entire world on a timeline that is sort of between the first coming of Jesus and the eventual second coming of Jesus. And so that means that 
you're really invested in seeing the world as a progression. And whether an individual person believes in Christianity or not, that overall viewpoint has still shaped the way that Western cultures have developed. Whereas he argues that for Native people, it's a spatial way of understanding the world because Indigenous peoples are so grounded in particular places. And so they are invested in what happened at a particular place rather than what happens at a particular time. And because that's true, it opens up several important possibilities for Indigenous cultures and for the ways that they think about the world that are not always available to people who come from a Euro-American culture. So one thing that happens is that it's more possible for Indigenous communities to accept that different groups of people have different beliefs. Because, for instance, if you're Laguna Pueblo and you are grounded among the four sacred mountains in the four directions, and you believe that the creator put you in that place surrounded by those mountains because they would protect you, then you don't really need to be concerned that the Cherokee people on the other side of the continent have a different understanding of how they came to be in the world and, you know, where their creator put them and what their expectations are. And so instead of Christianity, where you have this desire to spread the religion, to convert people, to missionize, to make sure that everyone believes the same thing, you have a more relativist approach that allows for different groups of people to hold different beliefs. And so in the world of science fiction, that actually makes it much easier for indigenous protagonists to come in and cope with problems that appear in a science fiction context. So one great example of this is in William Sanders' novel, The Ballad of Billy Badass and the Rose of Turkestan, where there is a giant radiation monster that is violently destroying people and destroying the community and doing damage that is just physically inexplicable. And all of the non-Native characters in the book just sort of keep saying, well, it doesn't make sense. We can't explain it. I don't know. Maybe it was somebody who'd taken a lot of drugs who did this damage. And at the same time, the Native characters are more open to what they don't know they're more open to the idea that it might be something that doesn't currently exist in their realm of knowledge because they're more comfortable with the idea that there's something, that there are unknown things in the world. And because they know that, they're better prepared to recognize the threat and find a way to respond to it while the non-Native characters continue to just insist that the threat doesn't exist in the first place. So interesting that that's founded on the perception of space, right? That this is a sacred closed in space and there isn't a, we just assume that there's something that we don't understand outside that can't be encountered or that, you know, that we would have to adjust to if encountered rather than that's subject to our particular way of understanding. Deloria talks about how this gets caught up in the temporal versus the spatial because when you've committed to a temporal understanding of the world, you sort of have to believe that you can see the whole picture, that you know what's coming along this temporal line, and that anything that doesn't fit into that belief system, you sort of refuse to see. And again, I think this is, you know, he's making some rather large generalizations. It's certainly not true of all Western people or all Euro-American people, but 
it's this interesting way of trying to think about the ways that we have so much trouble understanding things beyond our current belief system, the ways that we get fixed in our own understanding of reality. That makes me wonder about the difficulty with abstracting and and sort of like having to think in abstractions and grouping folks together. I wonder if if you could reflect a little bit on, you use the term indigenous science fiction, and, and you talk about in the book the kind of difficulty with that term because it's in fact lumping together a bunch of different groups of people who have different experiences of sovereignty in the United States, who have entirely different cultural practices and traditions, and yet stand in a particular kind of relation to another group. Could you say a little bit about what you're thinking about with that term and you know what the advantages are of, of thinking about indigenous science fiction particularly? Sure. I mean, I think that it's one of the problems with naming that comes up broadly in Native American studies or American Indian studies or indigenous studies. And I think that this is one reason that you see all those different names being um, tried out and used sometimes almost interchangeably because it's hard to figure out exactly how to group these people together while also acknowledging the vast cultural differences and linguistic differences and political differences between them. And so I think one of the things you can do with the term indigenous is you can say, first of all, that these are all people who have a shared experience of oppression and colonization. It will have affected different nations in different ways based on you know, which Europeans they encountered and whether they are based in what is now the United States or Canada. But you can certainly say that they have experienced similar policies. And there are also places that you can draw at least some broad similarities in the ways that most indigenous cultures think about the world, similarities like the ones that Deloria is describing that are certainly not universal, but are common patterns that you can then dig down into and look more carefully and more tribally specifically at individual authors and the individual cultural contexts that they're coming from. So I think you can focus on that shared experience at the broader theoretical level, and then within the space of looking at particular novels or other science fiction texts, there's more room then to expand on the historical and cultural um, particularities for each group. While I think also putting those things in a category that distinguishes them from Euro-American science fiction or um, what we've often thought of as mainstream science fiction, because these texts do tend to reflect really different worldviews than what we might expect from mainstream works. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Miriam C. Brown Spires, author of Encountering the Sovereign Other, Indigenous Science Fiction. You know, I wonder if we could drill down a little bit into some of those more specific works at this point in the conversation. As I mentioned in the introduction, you read four particular novels in the book. Could you give us a sense, sort of from a critical perspective, why you picked these four novels and maybe what your criteria were when you were looking for which novels would help demonstrate the character of the argument that you're making? Sure. I think when I first started, I saw that a lot of the research in this area had focused on indigenous futurisms. And that's completely understandable. It was building on the idea of Afrofuturism, 
And there's a lot of really obvious benefit in this idea of imagining Indigenous futures as a way of insisting that Indigenous peoples are still here in both the present and the future, and also that they are engaged in these sort of modern and contemporary projects. But at the same time, I felt like that had been focused on quite a lot, and science fiction is broader than futurism. And so I started looking for texts that would go beyond futurism and explore different subgenres. And so I began with the idea that I would have a general framework where I would look at uh, monster and creature stories, and then I would also look at alternate reality stories to see how those were also engaging in the tropes of science fiction. And the novels that I picked really ended up working nicely because they paired together looking at similar themes. So the two novels that are monster or creature stories, Billy Badass and The Rose of Turkestan, and It Came from Del Rio, are both stories that deal with radiation monsters, which turns out to be an extremely relevant trope, even though it might feel like an outdated trope because we think of radiation and fears of nuclear war and that kind of thing, and we often associate it with the Cold War. But it's really resonant for Indigenous authors because radiation exposure has both historically and still in the present been such a threat to Indigenous communities that ranges from uranium being mined by Indigenous peoples and on Indigenous land in the Southwest to, and Billy Badass, William Sanders is focused on the ways that nuclear waste has been disposed of on reservations, often in really unsafe ways that lead to exposure and generational issues for the people in li living in those communities. And so the idea of radiation also is interesting as part of that tension that we talked about with um, what does it mean to talk about Indigenous science fiction when you're really bringing together a lot of different groups with individual experiences Radiation also is a metaphor that functions in that way because it's a focus on the local, on the place that the uranium is being mined or the place that the waste has been disposed of or the place that the nuclear weapons tests are taking place. But at the same time, it's something that unites communities across the globe because there is no way to just contain nuclear power, right? If there's a threat on a particular reservation. It's not going to stay on that reservation. It's going to affect other communities, both native and non-native communities. It's going to affect the entire continent and ultimately the entire world. And so that subgenre became a really interesting way to think about the relationship between the local and the global and the ways that these issues affect everyone. And in the second half of the book, I was focused on alternate realities and the two novels that I talk about there, Writing the Trail of Tears um, by Blake Hausman, who's Cherokee, and Field of Honor by D.L. Birchfield, who is Choctaw, are both books that are, I think, trying to re-engage with the past and trying to think through the trauma of removal from the Southeast and what that means for Native peoples who are from those tribes. What does it mean to belong to a tribal nation that has been relocated, that is no longer on its sacred homeland? And how do we tell those stories and how do we keep dealing with that in the present? So for instance, writing a Trail of Tears, it's a really interesting idea. 
Hausman imagines a virtual reality tourist trap where tourists spend money to spend three hours in a virtual reality headset that allows tourists to walk the entire Trail of Tears in a compressed time period. And he's sort of exploring the potential, the way that this could be an educational tool, the ways that it could help non-Native peoples learn about this history and think about their responsibility and think about the ways that it continues to shape our lives in the present. But ultimately, all of that potential is really flattened by a desire to make more money and bring in more tourists and make sure that the tourists are satisfied and will be repeat customers. So it thinks through sort of what happens when we appropriate those stories, um, when we start telling them in ways that aren't culturally respectful. And what effect does that have? on contemporary Indigenous peoples who are asked to retell those stories and relive those traumas rather than being allowed to move into the present and imagine lives for themselves that go beyond that history. So I think with all four of these books, what they really have in common is that they're novels that adapt science fictional genre conventions to tell stories that are grounded in specific tribal indigenous cultural contexts. And they show the importance of indigenous knowledge in the 21st century as a way to solve problems that were often created by Euro-American culture and systems. And that those solutions may be enacted most often by the indigenous characters, but they offer new ways of looking at the world that can be helpful for non-native audiences as well. I wonder if we could pursue that last note a little bit further. I was really interested in your description of the the novel about the Trail of Tears, writing the Trail of Tears by Hausman, because of what you said there, that there is this horrible double bind, right? Like you want to remember and celebrate the culture that you come from, but then the colonizing culture expects like, well, you must just like keep reenacting this horrible thing that happened to you in your history in a way that is legible to us and that defines like actually defines your experience of the world how have the writers that you looked at you know in addition to um, exploring sort of problems inflicted by western culture how have they used science fiction to really push back against that ideology i think in a few ways um i think one is just even the existence of Indigenous science fiction as a category, I think is extremely helpful because the most popular stereotypes about Indigenous peoples, um, which are still extremely harmful, are this these ideas that they're stuck in the past, that whatever representations we see are from the 19th century, that it was really sad what happened, but there's been a genocide and therefore there are no more Native people or there are no more authentic Native people, or the only way that they could be authentic is if they looked and dressed um, and acted the same way that Native people did in the 19th century. And so when you hear that there are Indigenous authors writing science fiction in the first place, that challenges a lot of those stereotypes uh, as a first beginning. But then I think that they also are able to take the genre of science fiction because it is a literature that is explicitly about change and explicitly about seeing the world in new ways and understanding new perspectives. I think readers of science fiction 
come in maybe a little bit more open-minded than audiences in other genres might. And so they're more prepared to learn about Indigenous perspectives. And a lot of these novels really help guide readers who don't know a lot through the process of learning about Indigenous cultures, learning about the issues that Indigenous people still face in the present, and sort of imagining them in creative ways. But then I think beyond just highlighting these issues, they go a step beyond that to show that often Indigenous worldviews offer better ways for all of us to cope with some of the problems that we're facing. And I think there's a way to do this that's not cultural appropriation, not having a lot of non not encouraging non-Native people to suddenly adhere to Cherokee religious beliefs or something like that, but instead that for instance, it gives us a new way to think about our relationship to the natural world. Um, for non-Native audiences, individuals have just a fundamentally different understanding of the, the way that we interact and our responsibilities. There's a tendency to think of all parts of the natural world, including animals and plants and stones and mountains, as non-human relatives to whom we have a responsibility. And that way of thinking about the world can offer a different insights into problems like the climate change that we're all trying to deal with right now. That if we all thought more carefully about maintaining balanced relationships, we might be able to walk back some of the excesses of capitalism that have gotten us into the trouble we're in now. And so often Indigenous science fiction is able to show us these more productive ways of approaching the world through the examples of sort of exaggerated circumstances that you come across in a science fiction novel. Do the writers that you're dealing with, how would, how would you say that they express those ideas in the, in the form of science fiction? I mean, are they adding didactic sort of moves to the genre or are they bringing us to the sort of point of encountering the shock of the unknown and the new in this sort of Philip K. Dick? What are the kind of techniques that the writers use to bring readers along to those revelations? Yeah. So I think, for instance, sticking with the example of Blake Hausman and writing The Trail of Tears for a few minutes, within the virtual reality game that Hausman creates in the novel, things start going wrong in the game. And this is a pretty typical trope in a science fiction novel that something goes wrong in a machine. To go back to Star Trek, we can think about things going wrong in the holodeck, but you see it in lots of other places too. So it turns out that uh, in this case, the reason that the machine is going wrong is that the Cherokee little people have started to take over the programming. They've gotten inside the machine and are changing the way that the game works. So generally what tourists have to do is they enter the game in North Georgia. They're, they experience being rounded up by soldiers and they have to participate in the entire Trail of Tears until they end up in Oklahoma. And that's when the game ends. And if they've survived, then they've won the game. When the little people enter the story, they start taking over the non-player characters and they essentially create an uprising where they come across the tourists and fight back against the soldiers and massacre the, the American soldiers within the game and then insist that the group needs to go back to North Carolina instead. 
So you have this moment where, first of all, you're being asked to think about the humanity of the digital characters. Um, You're finding out that thanks to the little people, the digital characters are maintaining their consciousness. They remember every time that they've been part of the game, every time that they've been killed in the game. They understand that they're stock characters who are programmed essentially to be killed and they're dealing with the pain and trauma of reliving the removal. And so first you're being challenged to think differently about who is alive and who is a being that's worthy of respect. Um, Should the digital characters who we usually discount be counted in that category? And then you also get to think about their experience of reliving this history and the Cherokee tour guide to Lula, you get to think about her experience of reliving the history as well. And one of the things we see is that Tallulah, because she's done this job so often, she's become really numb to it. And she's repeated the game and traveled the Trail of Tears over a thousand times. And so she's become fixed in this very Western way of thinking linearly about just getting to the end of the game, just getting this group of tourists through, just getting the best tips she can and making the best profit. And so she's become very fixed and rigorous in the way that she approaches the game. But because of the chaos that the little people bring into the game, she has no choice but to throw out her script and to start thinking on her feet and being more flexible and imagining new solutions in order to get her tourists through the game. And so what she actually does is she moves back towards a more flexible, open-ended approach where she's more able to recognize the humanity of these other characters, and she's more able to adapt to the circumstances and also to accept help. She's seen herself as sort of the star employee and the star tour guide and someone who doesn't need assistance from anyone else. But the only way that she's going to be able to get through this particular version of the game is to accept help from her tourists and also from the non-player characters within the game. And so you see her kind of returning to something that looks more like Cherokee values as the novel progresses. So it's a bit of a experiential kind of clash of cultures with all of these different elements occurring. It's interesting that the mechanism for that happening in the novel is the Cherokee little people. Correct me if I'm totally wrong, but that's a sort of part of Cherokee folklore. Is that right? Yeah, I would say that they're part of traditional beliefs. So I, I would maybe avoid the word folklore. To, I had a Cherokee student in my class a couple of years ago. We read this book and she's told us that she refuses to say the phrase little people. She calls them the LP because she firmly believes that if she says their name, she might draw their attention. So I would say they're they're a traditional belief, but they're still alive and well. Yeah. Thank you for that. I wonder, do those kinds of traditional beliefs make similar appearances or do they factor in other novels that you're looking at? Yes, absolutely. I think that that's one of the things that I find most interesting is that Um, And this is part of what Gregory Cajete talks about. He argues that there is no native concept of science because indigenous worldviews are more holistic than that, that they don't draw a clear line, for instance, between the natural and the supernatural. And so one of the fundamental questions becomes, well, what does it mean to even define science fiction from an indigenous context? If things that from a Euro-American perspective, we would say are supernatural and that's why they belong in science fiction. 
that system of categorization wouldn't necessarily work in Indigenous science fiction. And I think what I have concluded is that the presence of religious or traditional elements in these novels of elements like the little people, that's not what makes it science fiction. That is simply a reflection of a traditional Cherokee perspective and one that lots of people have in the world. And it's especially important not to say that the little people are an example of science fiction, because it's almost the same thing as saying that Jesus Christ is an example of science fiction. Um, You don't want to suggest that a real religious tradition is simply made up, but these traditions do appear throughout the novels. Um, So for instance, in the Ballad of Billy Badass and the Rose of Turkestan, the protagonist uses a Cherokee tobacco ceremony to ward off and protect against the radiation monster. And Sanders is really careful not to include the specific details of that ceremony, just to say that Billy does the ceremony and that he follows the traditional Cherokee protocol for doing it, because that would be inappropriate information to share with a broader audience. That's something that's considered private. And so you have these religious traditions appearing, but it's essentially just showing us a different worldview, a different perspective than what mainstream American readers might expect from science fiction. And that what makes these books science fictional is their conscious engagement with actual science fiction tropes, right? So the radiation monster, the virtual reality machine, the imagined alternate world, or the creation of creatures, those things make it science fiction, not the existence of the religious elements. One of the things I really appreciate about that response is the emphasis on not diminishing these traditions to you know, just another trope of science fiction, that these are in fact living traditions and that there, as you say, are whole groups of people who continue to operate in the world with these beliefs and to hold them and take them as seriously as everyone takes their deeply held religious convictions. And I think that our tendency to do that is is related to our tendency to look at other groups of people and other them and to think about them as different from us and that their, you know, religion is something different than ours and therefore less valuable. And otherness, you know, the question of otherness is really central to your book. And I think that it's really important that we spend a little bit of time thinking about that, particularly the spin that you give it with the addition of sovereignty. One thing that really strikes me about how you talk about otherness that I think I don't see a lot elsewhere is we're accustomed to really thinking about otherness as a kind of objection, right? As a way of dehumanizing people. But but your concept of the other is slightly different. Could you tell us a little bit about how you're using that concept uh, and how it informs your approach to these novels? Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad that you brought that up. So I'm thinking about otherness first beginning in a place Um, with science fiction theory and the idea of ethical science fiction. There's a science fiction theorist named Michael Pinsky who has a book called Future Present Ethics and as Science Fiction. And he's arguing that rather than just seeing science fiction as a metaphor that repeats human experience, the genre has the possibility to really imagine encounters with alterity to go beyond our experience and try to think of something that is completely unfamiliar to us. 
And so he's using the other uh, in the sense that philosophers like Heidegger and Levinas have used it. And so he's following their argument to say that in the moment when we see the face of the other and recognize the demand of the other, the ethical demand is just in the moment of realizing that there is an other that exists outside of the self. But Penske argues that when this happens, even in science fiction, that it's essentially human nature to try to assimilate the other into the self to make it more like ourselves, and that that's somehow the only way we can respond. And the place that I want to intervene and push back, because I really love Penske's theory, but I think that this is a weakness, is that perhaps this is a Euro-American cultural way of responding to the other, but there can be other ways of responding. And that's something that Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous worldviews offer is a different way of interacting with the other, where you don't necessarily have to assimilate them. And so to that end, I turn to Anishinaabe scholar uh, Nigan Sinclair, who has argued that Indigenous ethics is about a mutual responsibility to build a better world together. And he uses the metaphor of a round dance to think about this idea of ethics, suggesting that what happens in a round dance is that different people have to find a way to acknowledge their needs and fit together, to come together to form something new that takes into account where everyone is, rather than having you know, this one fixed way of dancing and forcing everyone else to join you in that one fixed way of dancing. And so I think that ultimately what Indigenous science fiction can do is it can model this alternative way of having ethical encounters with the other, of creating a space where when you encounter that other, they can maintain their sovereignty and be recognized as human and worthy of respect and therefore having something in common with you, but at the same time being allowed to maintain their own agency and their own sovereignty and their own way of being in the world. Thank you so much for that answer. It does a great job of summing up the power of the book, which is to show how these novels facilitate that encounter and to help us think through these many dynamics. And so I just really encourage folks to check it out. I've had such a great time exploring your work and chatting with you today, Miriam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks again for having me. It was really fun. Oh, good. I'm glad. Miriam's book is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milne. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.